and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. As 2022 nears its end, with 2023 just around the corner, in this episode we're going to assess the lie of the land in the international and domestic economies. To do this, I'm joined by John McDermott. John is the Executive Director of Economic and Policy Research Institute, MOTU, and is also a former Reserve Bank Assistant Governor. Hi, John, and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. Look, obviously, high inflation has been the big economic theme of 2022. First time this has been the case in a long time. And this has obviously been uh, the case both here in New Zealand and in many other countries around the world. So as the year winds down, what is your assessment of where the battle to put the inflation genie back in the bottle is at? Yes, interesting question. Uh, it's been a tough year for central banks. Um, I think they started the year thinking this was going to be easy. Uh, it was just a temporary surge in prices. Once the bottlenecks and supply chains cleared themselves, all would be done. And that was the, the wrong assessment. Um, uh, and there's now a a realization that they've allowed things to carry too far. And what we've got to, I think, just listening to the Fed recently uh, in the US, they seem absolutely determined to fix this problem, to restore price stability. Uh, they've been the leaders here. Um, and that's that's been a big influence on financial markets through 2021. And it will shape the global economy through 2023 and financial markets. So. Uh, Fed watching has become an interesting sport, uh, and it will continue to do so next year. Absolutely. What I mean, I'm interested in the, I guess, the risks and costs of the inflation battle. So, if we look at the risks, to, firstly, I mean, what are the risks of losing the battle against inflation? In, inflation is incredibly corrosive, and it, it can be it can be sort of an abstract. You know, people don't realize how bad it is until they suddenly feeling, I can't afford things. Things have gone up. I can't do things that I, I could do before. The cost of living increases. It becomes a strain. It becomes, and, it, and it, it creates both an economic and a social strain. You know, if you can't, if you're budgeted and you're getting by and it was all okay, and then you suddenly find yourself can't pay the mortgage, you know, you can't afford the groceries, it creates an emotional strain. Uh, and that varies through society. So, that, so there's a hidden cost of inflation that people don't account for. And, that, and that's why it's really dangerous. Not only that, um, businesses, um, smart people, um, investors, they start thinking, well, it's costing me. Inflation is costing me. So I'll do things that I wouldn't otherwise do to protect myself from inflation. And those things are often speculative investing. Do I buy gold? Do I buy Bitcoin? All kinds of crazy stuff that actually is not productive. So economies slow down. So inflation is damaging. Um, the the difficulty if once you've let it carry on too far, inflation is painful to cure. You have to start rationing goods and services. So the way central banks do that is by putting up interest rates. Uh, that slows everything down. It, it reduces the incentive to borrow money. It reduces the incentive to spend the money. Um, and it runs the risk of causing a recession. So, you know, curing, curing inflation can be very painful for a year or, or longer, you know, 12 to 18 months. Um, but if you don't cure it, the costs increase forever. So um, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. 
So is it a is it a case really that um, there's going to be some short term costs, possibly medium term costs, of reining it in? And obviously, this sounds like it may well mean a recession next year, uh, probably rising unemployment as well. Um, so, so there's a price to pay, and that's a shame because it didn't really need to happen had we not um, put so much liquidity into the global system. But anyway, it has. Um, recession, I think that calling recessions are, are difficult. Um, you know, there's that, something that might happen once every 10, 15 years, perhaps a little bit more frequently in New Zealand. Um, but the, the difficult things, people lose the job, uh, businesses fail, uh, and it happens suddenly. I, th- I think what we can be assured of is we need to slow the economy down. So there will, it might not be a recession, but it will certainly things, the economy will be slower. We won't be as well off as we would have hoped. Um, there will be some people who will lose the job in sectors that are interest rate sensitive. So those are things. Um, but whether there is or isn't a recession, or particularly in New Zealand, I think depends on the international economy. What's going on in the rest of the world is, go- is going to determine whether we really have a nasty recession or whether actually it's just a bit of a slowdown. Just to, to take a step back there, you, you talked about how too much liquidity was put into the system. So obviously back in 2020, we had quantitative easing. We had uh, the Reserve Bank here in New Zealand um, embarking on, on on that, buying up government and local government bonds. Um, obviously very, very low official cash rate. We had um, a lot of fiscal support from the government, wage subsidy, that type of thing. When was the sort of point where it all went wrong in your view? Yeah, so you talked about 2020. So nothing was wrong in taking all those actions in 2020. Like it was the pandemic had just started. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Everybody was worried about business and consumer confidence, where we were going to be. So uh, supporting the economy and people's businesses and jobs at that time, I think, was vitally important. And actually, you know, in terms of fiscal policy, keeping everybody in jobs and trained and uh, being able to plan for the future. I think that was really well done. The difficulty was, um, if you remember the first lockdown, it was it was over by mid-year 2020. At that point, the emergency support should have been stopped and reversed. And it wasn't. And, and in fact, worse than that, um, um, New Zealand added to some of the support mechanism. You remember it was it was late... Uh, 2020, when the Reserve Bank started its funding for lending program, that, that kicked it off in December. Now, nobody was locked down here then at that point. Uh, and so people had been shot. Everybody's savings rate had gone up when we were locked down. So people had cash in their pocket. They suddenly realized they hadn't lost the job. Most businesses had survived. There was a few casualties, but most survived. The economy was in really good shape. And there was a lot of liquidity in the system. And all that liquidity went into assets. And in New Zealand, that meant house prices. House prices went absolutely ballistic. Uh, And not only is that bad for the economy, it's bad for income inequality, it's bad for wealth inequality. So basically, we had all this emergency um, support when we didn't need it, and it just made rich people richer, and those who were trying to get into the housing market just could never afford it. It was uh, horrific. And Eventually, that liquidity then finds its way from assets into goods prices, and we get inflation. And that was that was the path. Uh, and slowly through 2021, which that should have been more apparent, 
and it should have been started to be reversed, and it really wasn't. And, and so the reversal process didn't take place until I, in some countries, late 2021, um, most countries early 2022. Um, and so now we're paying the price of that. In terms of an inflation, um, do you think it's peaked yet? I mean, I guess both here in New Zealand and, and overseas, I mean, notably the US, there's, there's some talk now that maybe it has peaked there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can have a look at the consumer basket and, and look at which prices are going up and which prices are not. Um, and we saw the early part of the process was it was goods prices. The price. So when people were locked down, they got online, they ordered stuff, or the supply chains were choked, you couldn't get it, so people bid up the price and firms you know, increased the price. Um, and then later on, when people realized, oh my God, I, you know, prices are going up, I need higher wages, they sort of compensated, that put the cost of all the services in the economy up. So there was this sequence that goods prices went up first, service prices went up second. What we're seeing now is the goods prices are coming down while the service prices are already going up. And goods prices tend to be a lot more volatile. So if you look online, there's a lot of, there's a lot of goods prices coming down. So uh, certainly that's true in the U.S., um, true in New Zealand, Australia, you know, and, and various around the world. The other thing that's important is we had a big surge of oil prices that added to inflation at the beginning of the year. Oil prices have come down, so that means the cost of transportation is coming back. So that all kind of helps. Um, so absolutely, inflation in most countries has peaked, but it will still be... Uh, 2023 will still be a year where inflation will be above most central banks' targets. And are we going to see interest rates rise further? I mean, certainly the Reserve Bank in New Zealand is telling us that, that they're going to continue increasing the official cash rate next year from obviously 4.25 now, which is, you know, an increase of 400 basis points in about 13 months. Um, the Fed has also been very aggressive this year, Reserve Bank of Australia to a degree as well. Um, obviously, those are probably the two central banks we watch most closely in New Zealand. Um, so, I mean, other central banks, are they getting the bang from, for their back from those rate hikes yet? Uh, fascinating question. I, I think there's probably a little bit more to go, but they've moved interest rates, you know, all those central banks, uh, the US Federal Reserve here in New Zealand, perhaps a little bit less in Australia, but they have moved them a long way. And, a lot, and they've moved on at a speed that is fast historically. And we also know that most of that move has yet to have an impact on the economy. So I, I, my, my guess is the central banks needed to do that. They needed to play catch up. They needed to get the policy into a, into a zone where it was, would stop adding to the problem. At the, um, we've, we've sort of done that. Um, there'll be a little bit more... Um, let's feel our way from here. We'll push them up in smaller increments and there'll be much more testing of what's happening in the economy. Uh, are we getting the feedback? Are we getting the response that we think we should be getting? And we'll be here and you'll hear the central banks use the phrase data dependent. So we'll move interest rates depending on what happens with the data, depending on how things unfold. What does the outlook look like? Is it as we expect? And then if so, they'll slow down and say, yep, we've got it under control. I mean, you, you've obviously worked in a central bank before and uh, you're very familiar with how they work and what their mandates are. 
Uh, I'm just interested to ask you about, I guess, the key monetary policy tools, certainly that the Reserve Bank in New Zealand has and there's similar inflation targeting central banks around the world. Do you think that these the key tools are still fit for purpose after the experience we've been through in the last couple of years? Do you think it was just mistakes where, you know, humans make mistakes sometimes, it was unprecedented times, all that type of stuff? Or do you think that there needs to be some change to the monetary policy tools? And if so, what? Oh, that's a, okay. Uh, I thought this might be a small interview. <laughs> that's a super big question. And look, I'm fascinating. Um, I think, so there's, there's three tools central banks really focus on in, in modern times, right? Which is the classic, let's move interest rates. Um, there's been a lot of talk about what's called forward guidance and then uh, what's also called QE, quantitative easing. Those are, those are the big three that central banks uh, can use. Now, interest rate moves are still as powerful as they ever were. They, they still move spending from today to tomorrow if necessary and, and sort of moderate the economy. The problem is... Um, Interest rates globally, because of demographic reasons, all, have all been falling. So the, the, the level at which the economy is balanced, the interest rate at which the economy is balanced, is now much lower than it was a decade ago. Uh, and that becomes a problem when you get interest rates close to zero. Because at zero, um, you know, why would you give anybody any money and pay them for that privilege? So it's really difficult to push interest rates into the negative territory. So what we found out is the classic moving interest rates is a little bit more constrained than we thought. St still works, but, that, but there's a problem at zero. Uh, so to compensate, central banks came up with the idea, well, let's just print money, QE. Uh, I, that has proven uh, problematic. I think we'll re reassess history and decide QE turns out to be a really bad idea, uh, you know, apart from the real emergency settings. It, so in, under normal times, central banks should not be doing this and they should be repairing the balance sheet because QE just seems to find itself in asset markets. It pushes, it moves equity markets up, it moves house prices, it creates other distortions in the economy that we really don't need to have. And it creates all kinds of financial stability problems. So QE has proved very dangerous. Maybe we should have it for just in case, but understand the cost of using it is much, much higher than we ever anticipated. Um, the third tool is what's referred to as forward guidance. So the central banks talking about the future plans, trying to move other, other, um, other interest rates, so longer term interest rates. Um, now they come in two flavors. So it's kind of one is let's promise to do something and we'll keep doing it until a given date. So, you know, our Reserve Bank did that with various policies. It says we, we're not going to, we're not, we're going to do this policy and we're not going to change it till the end of 2020. So that's referred to as a time dependent forward guidance. That proves incredibly stupid. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, because the world was changing so fast, there was so much uncertainty. You've kept yourself to something that ends up being wrong. Now you've committed yourself, hard to reverse that out because you might lose credibility. So the central banks should now stop using time-dependent forward guidance. They should stop promising to do something for an incredibly long period of time. And the Reserve Bank of Australia fell into that trap 
Uh, it promised to try and target certain interest rates, and it promised that through to, to 2024. And then it found, you know, the circumstances had changed so radically, it had to back away in the end. The market's forced it out. Um, so a very dangerous tool. The other flavor of forward guidance is what's called state dependent. So we'll keep doing this until the state of the economy improves to where we want it. Now, that actually proves very effective. So I kind of like that approach where central banks say, we will keep monetary policy easy until the emergency is gone or until unemployment has got down to a level that we feel comfortable with. Or, you know, we'll keep raising interest rates until inflation is cured. So you condition your interest rates on the things that matter. And I think the central banks will start, again, reviewing history. And if they review it, they'll start using that tool more than they have in this in this cycle rather than less. Certainly interesting. Is there anything new you'd like to see them sort of bring in as well? Uh, it, no, it, you know, they, they can still think you know, uh, about um, different ways to implement policy. The, the difficult thing about monetary policy is you're trying to figure out what's going on in the economy when you when you don't have all the data, the information's not updated. Even when you get the data, six months later, you find out actually it's been revised. Um, so if you really want to improve conditions, we really need to invest more in our data analytics. That's collecting the data and understanding it. Mm. And, you know, New Zealand is now, I think, the only advanced country, maybe the only country in the world that has collects its consumer price index on a quarterly basis. Everybody else does it monthly. That just seems insane, you know. And it, and it didn't feel like a problem when there was no inflation. Why are we spending more money collecting data for something that where there isn't a problem? Until, of course, you get an inflation problem. And then you realize, boy, I don't even have the data I, sh- I need to manage the economy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a very good point. Look, you, you've just uh, recently been traveling. Um, so I believe... Uh, Australia recently, Singapore, Japan. I thought it'd be be interesting to have a chat about those places, but also obviously the US and China, the two biggest economies, really, really important from a global and a New Zealand perspective. So, I mean, what what was the the sort of lie of the land that you encountered in your in your in your travels? It's, um, so mixed, and I, and I think what plays out globally will be really important in twenty twenty three. So we've already talked about the US uh, and its role in driving global monetary policy. The US is the leader in that, and, and that's what will happen there. Um, obviously, in the news right now is China. Uh, China had the zero COVID policy. It, it had run it for a long time. It suddenly realized it was trashing its own economy in, in doing that. Well, it had other problems with property and banking and so on. Um, and so a massive U-turn, absolutely massive U-turn. I, uh, the human cost could be horrific. Uh, in, in that U-turn. I don't, they don't look ready for that kind of change. Nevertheless, um, you've watched what happens in Europe, in the US, even in our own economy. Once, once you open up, um, there's a lot of repressed demand that takes off. So, you know, you could see a really interesting phenomenon where, in fact, uh, right now with China being in a mess, commodity prices are all falling, all prices are falling, but imagine, imagine a world where uh, halfway through the year, um, it's got over that horrific problem and it's opened up. Um, and that could be a big stimulus to global demand. So, uh, which is why I say, you know, trying to predict a recession is hopeless, right? 
um, that the mess in China could continue and it could be really horrible, so you get a big recession. Or, in fact, it could look more like what happened to us after we opened up uh, and the economy boomed. Uh, and that would, you know, that's, you know, 1.4 billion people spending money in a global economy. Uh, and then there's no recession anywhere. So I think that's, so who knows what's going to happen, but uh, I think that will shape much of 2023. Um, the rest of Asia uh, still also, like us, has a, an inflation problem. Prices have been going up, um, but a uh, lots of nervousness about um, weak manufacturing demand. There's not much coming out of China. Commodity prices are falling. So there's this split between, oh, oh my goodness, too, inflation is too strong, but on the other side, the economies are too weak. And where do you set policy and where's the right balance to manage that? And I think most central banks in the region have been putting up interest rates. What they've been trying to do, um, following the Fed with a lag, should we say that way? So where the Fed goes, I think Asian central banks end up, will end up following eventually. What about the Australians? Uh, oh, their economy just seemed absolutely booming. Uh, the labour market, like ours, is incredibly tight. I think for every vacancy, you know, for every person unemployed, there's an existing vacancy. Um, you know, if you, and the, the wage rates are just climbing. I kind of, I have a sneaky suspicion the Reserve Bank of Australia has been a little slow to react to the to the heating economy. Um, you know, and you know they will they will be vulnerable to a slowdown in the global economy. But you know, it, a world that recovers quickly. Uh, after China gets over um, its zero COVID policy, you know, China, Australia could really boom. Uh, and that's both an opportunity and a risk to New Zealand, right? You know, Australia is such an important trading partner for New Zealand. You know, successful Australia is great. Um, but at the same time, a successful Australia will suck a lot of labour uh, across the Tasman. And the New Zealand labour market is already incredibly tight. So, um, if you're in business, uh, you're going to think, how do I protect my workers? How do I keep them positively engaged and not lose them across the Tasman? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a uh, summer at the beach um, thought, I guess, for a lot of um, business owners to keep in mind this this year. Look, I'm going to ask you now, John, to to um, you know if you if you cast your mind back to when you were in your previous job at the Reserve Bank. Now, um, obviously we have a three-month gap between monetary policy or official cash rate reviews. Not We don't get another one until the 22nd of February. Um, so if you were still in your old job at the Reserve Bank, what would you be watching in particular over the summer whilst you are lying on the beach or whatever you would, were doing? I'm still stuck in the office. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, top... So I'd be thinking more internationally than domestically. I think um, I'd be in eagle eye on what the Fed is doing. Does it slow down? How does it set policy? We cannot be too far away from what they're doing. Um, so uh, if the Fed accelerates its interest rate cycle, uh, we'd have to do something similar here. Um, the second one is how does what's going on in China play out? At this point, nobody knows. Um, but again, a big driver of the global business cycle. So those would be the big two international developments. And they would completely dominate anything that's taking place here. 
Uh, the third thing, so you always have to have a list of three, right? But the third thing would be domestic. And I just like, I'm just, you know, the Reserve Bank balance sheet is too big. Um, I think they've sequenced it wrong. So they've increased interest rates while keeping the balance sheet large. So that's, to me, it looks like they've slammed on the brake while pushing the foot on the accelerator at the same time. And, and uh, you know, I would think the priority at this point is to get the balance sheet to a normal size, even if that means having to slow interest rate increases. It's far better to um, maybe sell some of those government bonds um you know, back into the private, back to the private sector, and certainly um, the funding for lending program. If they can reverse some of that out, so I don't know what the contracts look like, but um, they've stopped increasing now at, at this point. But most of those contracts, I think, were for three years, so they, they might not be able to reverse out through 2023. But they should try, um, and then then certainly the balance sheet will will shrink rapidly in 2024. That's too late. You should be doing it in 2023. And that would be my priority. And I'd be watching the size of that balance sheet. And if, I, if it got back down to a more normal size, I'd be feeling much more comfortable that we'd have a sustainable control of price stability. What, what's the particular problem you see with the size of the Reserve Bank's balance sheet? And, and you're talking there about the, the bonds they bought in the quantitative easing program particularly, and um, and, and the funding for lending program where they lent it to banks um, for three-year terms at the official cash rate, yeah. Yeah, uh, um, so both of them effectively increase what economists refer to as high-powered money. That liquefies the system. Um, but rather than supporting people with their incomes or supporting businesses, it, it's really gone, it goes into the financial system. Uh, and in the financial system, it has to work through asset prices. So it's overinflated asset prices. Now, uh, that creates, um, we've sort of already gone through this territory, but it creates this distortion in terms of wealth distribution. Um, it distorts business decisions and it creates the f- financial fragility in the system. So everybody, it becomes over leveraged. There's too much debt in the system. Um, uh, and, and how you, how you, how you reverse out of this, what the exit strategy is, is always tricky. And I haven't seen any country do this well. So this is a, this is a problem. Right? And, uh, you know, you see, I think it was Japan who probably started the whole process of, of what we now refer to as quantitative easing. And I think Japan, the Bank of Japan owns 50% of its domestic bond market. It's crazy. Even in good times, it hasn't been able to reduce it. And what you get is you get a stagnation in the economy. So the only way you keep the economy going is you keep doing it. And then when you try to stop doing it, you slow everything down dramatically. Um, and then you, you create a whole financial system, which is banking, financial services, insurance, all dependent. Uh, they, they all require this lifeline. The business model relies on QE keeping going. So I think we need to say that has not to be New Zealand's future. We don't want a distorted financial system. So it's important to reduce it before we get hooked on that really bad habit. Great. Look, I think that's a great a great place to end this, um, John. I really appreciate your, your time. That's John McDermott, Executive Director of Economic and Policy Research Institute, MOTU, and a former Reserve Bank Assistant Governor. And I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast.